My dear friends, welcome back to another episode of the Shemad Podcast. We've been talking a lot the last several episodes about this journey from Pesach to Shavuos. I described it as two bookends, but you know what? I stand corrected. I was talking to Rabbi Chaim Busco, the average rabbi, the incredible average rabbi, and he pointed out that that's not actually true. The bookends are Pesach and Sukkos. And he explained to me, reminded me the halakha of marriage, which I just went through. I just married Elisheva back in January. That the process of marriage is first separation to Kasuba, where I laid out and agreed to everything that I'm obligated to do for Elisheva. And her part of the equation was to remain separate for me. And then we went under the hoopah. And that is basically what we're going through. Pesach was Hashem separating us for him as his bride. Mount Sinai is the Kusuba, where he talks about everything that he will provide to us on the condition we remain separate and holy for him. As in this week's Parsha, Kedushim, where we acknowledge everything we will do to remain holy and separate. And that leads us to the Hupa, to being in our Sukkos, on Sukkos. The wedding canopy, once again. And it makes sense that there's a pit stop we go through. Yom Kippur. Why is that so necessary? Because for most of us, guys like me, we make lots of mistakes with our thoughts, words, and actions. And we need to go back and ask for forgiveness and put ourselves back in that state of purity, holiness, so our beloved, the Almighty, will take us back under the hoopah once again. So that means these bookends are much further apart, which means... We have a lot greater distance to go. You know, I was thinking of when I was a kid, my dad got me a slingshot. You know, when you're trying to get a projectile to go the furthest distance with a slingshot, you have to pull it back as far as possible to put as much tension on the other side in order to go in the opposite direction the furthest distance. And I was thinking that when the Jews were in Egypt, they were at the 49th level of impurity. And I sort of see that as the same slingshot type situation analogy that projected us to the 49th level of holiness of purity at Mount Sinai. So it was fitting as I've been thinking about these things that Rabbi Abrams has agreed to come back on. And we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to why did the Almighty put us in to servitude in Egypt and address it back from an earlier stage to really know the trajectory of where this is going. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, Go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Rabbi Abrams, thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to have you back here. He has been such an amazing influence over my life for last year. I can't tell you how appreciative I am of having him here and now getting to share him with all of you. It's really gratifying to hear you say that and to know that all that effort and all that work for um, both our parts is actually leading somewhere. It's actually manifesting in growth and progress. Very happy to hear that. 
Okay, Rabbi, you mentioned to me in our conversations that if you really want to understand Pesach and the journey to Shavos and onward, in order to understand where we're going, we really need to understand where we came from. Considering we want to really go back to the beginning, we should first understand why we need to go back to the beginning. And there's a beautiful, a beautiful comment by Rev Yitzchak Kutner, who explains why the word for truth in Hebrew is emes, spelled with the first letter of the Torah, the Aleph, the middle letter of the Torah, which is the Mem, and it is a middle letter, I believe, if you include all the letters that have a different form for being at the end of a word. If you include that in the, in the list, you'll come out as the middle letter. And then finally, the last letter, which is a Saf. So it goes from the first letter of the Torah to the middle, to the present, and to the future, to the end. Meaning, in order to really recognize the truth, you have to find the consistent thread that connects the beginning, the past, the present, and the future, and the end, the culmination of everything, and only then will you know you have found the truth. That's how Rev. Hutner explains, that's how he qualifies our, um, our pursuit of truth. So let's go back to the beginning and try to find this common thread. So in the beginning, we have to look at when Adam was created, which was God, what was God's intention and purpose from Adam? We have to look at what Adam's state was before the sin. When God created him in his original intended state in order to fulfill his purpose. In that state, Adam was entirely made of good. He only had good within him. And anything evil or bad were influences from outside of him. But at that point, nothing had been internalized, nothing had been incorporated of evil. And Adam's only goal now, as we know, there was one negative commandment that he was given, is resist the temptations of the evil influences from outside of you, overcome them, and by conquering those evil influences, by overcoming them, you can then truly incorporate the bad within you, but only as good. You will convert the bad into good. And that was Adam's goal. And he understood that. But when faced with the temptation to sin, and included that was the rationalization of why he should sin, which had some good and some bad elements to it. There were some good intentions in the sin as well. He began, he began throughout the process of eventually eating from the tree, but even when considering, and this was all happening obviously with Chava, with Eve, with his wife, they began considering what would be the consequences, what would be the purpose of eating from the tree? And like I said, there was some good intention in that. There was some bad, there was some lust, there was some desire, but there was also some good. They imagined what it would look like if they ate from the tree. And they saw that it might actually become good. The problem was, obviously, that they ignored the dictate of God. They ignored the commandment in order to eat from the tree. And that in itself was, obviously, at least we know in hindsight, a tremendous sin. But what that sin had the effect of doing was incorporating the bad. They ingested the knowledge of good and bad within them. They incorporated the evil within them. And like the very intention of the sin, now the, the good and the bad are virtually indistinguishable. It is very difficult to tell the difference between what is a good intention, what is a bad intention, what is a good deed or a bad deed. And now confusion reigns. At this point, after the sin, Adam's state is very different. He is a combination of good and bad, the meaning man and his wife. The human species are now a combination of good and bad. And because we are the center of the world and through which the purpose of the world is realized and the, the world functions, the, the world is the environment through which we can fulfill our purpose and elevate not only ourselves but, that, but the world around us. 
the world also became a combination of good and bad. And this combination of good and bad, again, it makes it very difficult to differentiate and to distinguish between the good and the bad in the world. And that's Adam posed the sin as well. The good and the bad within him, like we feel today. We sometimes can't tell what is a good intention, what is a bad intention. Right. What might be a good deed, what might be a bad deed. And even after a lot of introspection and reflection, we, we still don't know if we, we are about to choose the right thing or if we chose the right thing in the past. Very, very difficult to know. It's very muddled. Very muddled, exactly. Now, this state, post the sin, still, the goal remains the same. The goal now is just, it's, it's further in the distance. There's a much longer process to get there. There's a lot of suffering along the way, and we'll see why there's going to be suffering. But the goal remains the same. The goal is still for the good to separate itself from the bad, which right now, again, they're virtually indistinguishable, but to become separated, and then the good can eventually overcome the bad, can conquer it, and can elevate the bad into a state of goodness. And that is still the goal of man and the world. But like I said, there is some suffering along the way. And the reason why there's suffering is because we're going to talk about it in a second, but there are two tracks. I guess this is probably the best way to go about it. There are two tracks through which God runs the world. There is the track that went through the ultimate purpose that God created the world and the way the world is run, it is governed in order to reach this goal, is for man to receive the highest reward possible, which is a, an association and a relationship with God himself. That is the ultimate good that God can give us. Now, considering that that is the ultimate purpose of the world, there's a track that, is gov- that God governs the world upon. He governs it on this track for, towards this goal. This is the overarching track of how God governs the world. But then there is a subtrack. And this subtrack really starts from the day that Adam sins, and it continues all the way till the coming of Mashiach. And that is the perfection and rectification of the world itself, the perfection and rectification of men within this world. That second track is what we're going to discuss more in more detail today. We're going to focus more on that second track. That's the subtrack. Now, ultimately, that subtrack, by running the world in such a way, God will eventually facilitate the goal of the first track. But in order to do so, he must run the world in the subtrack and keep the goal, keep the focus on Mashiach and the development of man towards Mashiach. And in that, throughout that period of time, man can earn the reward in, the, in, in his share in the world to come. Okay, so let's stop for a second. Clarify good and bad. Ah, so I was wondering when that would come up. Okay, that's a good point. So good and bad are essentially either a relationship with God, a connection to God, or an absence of a connection with God. And that's why you can technically take something that was created in absence of God, meaning to be a reflection of that absence, and ultimately elevate it to be a part of God's good. You can take something that was never connected and connected. Okay. You can, right, you could take something that never had in its essence or in its core that relationship and connect it back to God, and then it can become good. But in order to do so, you have to work with it in an external fashion. You have to overcome the, the threat and the danger that the evil presents externally to you. For example, the sin of, with the tree, there is a facade of that tree, of that sin. There's a facade of that, of that as to tempt man to sin. And as long as he, as he can overcome that temptation, as long as he can overcome the threat that the evil presents, he can elevate it to become connected to God. Because he just used that to bring God's presence 
into the world to recognize God. Okay, so our most actions are permitted. It's just whether that action is being done in service to the Almighty or whether it's done for other reasons. And I see all these sayings, I think maybe you can clarify this, with the, the, the tree of good and evil is what was tempting to them was more of a layer of independence and instead of being subservient to the Almighty, that they would be sort of this independent force. And that's what plagues us today when we pursue certain pleasures for our own self, our selfish needs, not as a servant to the Almighty. That is evil, that is bad. And when we humble ourselves like Moshe, then that's good. Then, then we get the ultimate reward. So that is the confusion of a mixture of good and bad. That is a confusion that the tree in that by ingesting the tree, we incorporate it into ourselves. That inability to distinguish between what will ultimately make a, an action good or bad. Okay. But this is well before the Torah was given. At this point, there is nothing, there is no course necessarily. There is no course to connect. There is no guidebook, so to speak, to connect our actions back to God. At this point, we remain relatively ignorant of how to do that. And that's the great level of confusion that eating from the tree brought into this world. It becomes very, very difficult to figure out how to take our actions and connect them back to God. And that's why you find immediately after Adam and the generations following him, the ten generations leading to the flood, that these people were completely ignorant of God and his presence in the world. With With the exception of a few individuals, they were completely corrupted selfish and godless because there was no prescription of how to return the world back to goodness how to return the world back to this purpose of being connected to god and that's what the eating from the tree did now i just mentioned that there were some individuals who remained righteous now those individuals could theoretically have continued adam's purpose in the in this world people like misushalach or hanoch these are people who displayed to tr- tremendous levels of righteousness, but they lacked one thing that God was that God wanted in order in, to, in order to continue Adam's mission in this world. Hashem ultimately wanted there to be a perfection of a collective, of a nation, of as of a, of a group rather than individuals. And Adam, Adam, if he had not sinned, would have given birth to some to to many descendants who would have been that collective, who would have been those nations, who were originally all incorporated in, within him. He would have given birth to all these people. And then those people would have shared with him the relationship and this close connection with God in the world to come. But because he sinned, now God didn't have any place for these souls. Adam himself was corrupted and was incapable of resuming his purpose, his mission. And then all these 10 generations subsequent to Adam... And we're going to see soon that it was actually 20 generations, really. Nobody rose up with the same conviction and commitment that was required to continue Adam's mission. A conviction of their purpose and the purpose to bring the world to God. And a commitment to bringing other people and not just themselves under the same umbrella. To bring other people into this relationship with Hashem. Only one person finally arose to do that. And that was Avraham. And and that's why Noah did not have the right characteristics to be the progenitor of the Jewish people because he just wanted to build the ark, protect his family, put him in there. He didn't go out and rebuke anyone or try to turn them around. Correct. That wasn't the right vessel to bring, create a nation. Correct. Though Noah was a tremendous 
tzaddik, a, tr- a tremendously righteous person in his own right, he didn't have the extra level of ability, that extra sensitivity that Avraham was going to foster, was going to, was going to bring into the world of, I need to bring everybody else, as many other people as I can, into this relationship with Hashem. Noach did not have that. But one thing did change with the flood, which sort of paved the way for Avraham to come along. And that is, before the flood, the people were completely corrupted, and there wasn't even a thought of serving God. They were completely selfish. They were selfish to the point where they couldn't cohabit properly. They couldn't coexist in a cordial and and sociable way. They were fighting with each other. They were stealing from each other. And that was just the way of the world, each man to himself. But after the flood, people began to work together. People began to form groups. They began to form coalitions. And there was a point even where it looked like almost the entire world was going to come together and build the Tower of Babel. So there was a maybe subtle but important change from before the flood, where the generations after the flood were now a step closer to the uh, resumption of Adam's purpose. And you talked about the, these two tracks, and one one track is about rectification of the world. And I know in the, the commentaries during the Parshas of Noach that the, the people, when they were sinning so bad, that it, it had a tremendous influence on the world around them, on the animals, the land. And we know that now. We know the idea of... In, in quantum mechanics, the observer effect, where you know we our consciousness is influencing matter and what happens. So our words and our actions do severely influence the environment. The animal, right, correct. Everything else. Okay, and that works both ways. And we're gonna actually we're gonna see how it manifested to a much greater degree in Egypt, potentially to a degree like it was before the flood. Even though the exile in Egypt came about five or six hundred years after the flood. No, actually a little more than that, around 600, around 600 years after the flood, we're going to see actually that that level of effect that people's selfishness can have on their environment was going to be manifest in Egypt as well. But correct, before the flood, this, that, was, that, that was the effect people are having on the world. And that's why the flood, that's what precipitated the flood itself. And after the flood, things were a little different and people were more cooperative with each other. They were getting along together, and it was just a much more conducive environment for a person like Abraham and a soul like Abraham's to come forth with him. Okay, great. Okay, so now these first 2,000 years from Adam's sin until the, well, really until Abraham reached maturity and, and began his mission, these 2,000 years were the 2,000 years that God was waiting for somebody to take Adam's place. He had pre-set, so to speak, before the 2,000 years began, that there would only be 2,000 years allowed for somebody to come along and resume Adam's mission. And like I said, there were many people who came along who did not have the chops, who did not have the ability to, to perfect not only themselves, but also others and the world around them. But it was only until Avraham that, that, that somebody came along to do that. Okay, the first thing to note about Avraham and how he accomplished this is in his nickname, Avram Ha'ivri. He was known as the Ivri, meaning the one on the other side. He's the one who crossed over. He, in order to take the first step on this mission, he separated himself from the world. He separated himself from his society, even though this was becoming a society that was increasingly easy to become a part of and potentially rewarding to be a part of. 
to be, you know, to, to relate to everybody else and to, be, to cooperate. Avram took himself and separated himself from everybody else. The first step was he separated himself. Then he came along with ideas of God that he had come up with during his years of separation, during his time of separation, and started preaching it to his fellow human beings, which they ridiculed him for. It's a lot easier to be holy in total isolation or only around other really holy people versus needing to go out and integrate without assimilating into the rest of the world. Right. Nobody's saying, for example, nobody's saying that Noach, Mesushalach, and Hanoch, to name three at least, would have been successful necessarily if they had engaged their fellow human beings, if they had gone out and engaged the society that they lived in. Nobody says they necessarily would have been successful or, or that it would have been very easy for them. But they, they succeeded in, their spirit, uh, in maintaining a high spiritual level in isolation to the exclusion of the outside forces. But Avram was, the other, was, the, was of a different type. He actually went out and tried to proselytize to the other people who were forming this, this tremendous tower, working on this tremendous project, and tried to convince them to also separate themselves from the project and join his ranks. And like I said, in the beginning, he was very unsuccessful. People were ridiculing him, and he went through a lot of hardship in those first, during those first attempts. For example, one of the things that happened was the famous showdown with Nimrod, where he was, Avram was eventually cast into the fiery furnace with no expectation necessarily of surviving. But he did survive, and he came out a lot stronger because of that. So, but again, the first step is to separate yourself, work on yourself, then the second step, and we're going to see that we're kind of somewhere within that process ourselves already because we do have all this history behind us, all this work already done by our ancestors. Okay. But the first step is... Theoretically, again, we're dealing with a world of massive confusion where good cannot, you cannot distinguish the good from the bad. And in such a way, the bad, the evil, has such an influence, such a dominance over good that it, it's almost as if God has no presence in the world. And people were actually questioning it. Before the flood, nobody even recognized God. And after the flood, the people who recognized God sought to remove him from the world with the Tower of Babel. So the, the effects of this confusion, the effects of this uh, mixture of this combination of good and evil was that evil would have such an, such an influence over the good, such a dominance that it would seem almost as, as if God has no power in this world. Okay. So this was um, until Avram. And like I said, the first step is separate yourself. Or other, in other words, separate the good from the bad. The first step is separation. If you can begin to distinguish the good from the bad and work really hard at separating the two, well, then you might have a chance of using the good to influence the bad. But the first step is separation. And ultimately, the goal at this point is to get back to the point of Adam pre-sin, like we said, which is then, which then follows with the secondary goal, with the next goal, which is the primary goal, actually, of using the good to overcome the bad, using the good to influence the bad. The first step is get to Adam Priestin, which is a, a complete separation of good and bad. And then, and we're going to see this actually is going to play out over the next few parts of the story. So that was Avraham. At this point in history, Ramchal explains that this is called the period of the roots, where each nation, each person, each influential person at the time has the ability to, disti- to, to define what him himself and his descendants are going to be for the rest of the existence of this world. It's at this time where everybody's given their last opportunity to choose where they're going to be, on which side. Are they going to be, as, as a nation, as a collective, okay. 
Are they going to be a part of God or are they going to be a part of themselves? And for the most part, everybody chose to be a part of the be focused on themselves and to, as we saw with the Tower of Babel, they all united to kick God out of this world, to remove God from this world. Now it became set and determined that these people were going to become part of the other nations of the world, but not part of the Jewish people. They were not going to become the Jewish people. The one person who separated himself from the rest of the world and chose God, Avraham, was going to become the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. So now this is where we have the concept of the 70 nations. The reason why we have 70 is because after the tower was, when, when God foiled the plan of the tower, he separated everybody into 70 different nations. This is all part of the process of separation okay. that we're going through now. He separated everybody into 70 distinct nations. And again, seeing, since this is the period of the roots, each nation is now determined for the rest of history. There's going to be the nation of Babel. There's going to be the nation of Mitzrayim, the nation of Canaan. Each one of these nations are going to be distinct and defined for the rest of their existence. Okay, there's, there's a, like a, a spiritual dynasty, like spiritual DNA that will now forever exactly. influence. Like a DNA is an excellent way to put it. Now, Avram is the one who's going to foster the Jewish people now. This is called the period of the roots, and each nation is set and determined during this time. Okay, this, again, this is all part of the separation, separating good from bad. Avraham on one side, he'll become the good. The Jewish people will be the good. They will carry the mission. They will carry on the mission of Adam. They will carry on that mission, try to get back to pre-sin. And they will be the ones to make the attempt at conquering the evil around them, bringing the world to its perfection. While the rest of the nations will represent the bad. They will be the bad of the world, meaning the part that is discarded, the part that is not a part of the good. Isn't it true that there is good within the evil that needs to be sort of extracted? And maybe by when you have a big mess, if you if you have 70 different piles, it's much easier to pull the good out. That's that's an excellent point. That might be why they became 70 nations to make it easier to extract the good. But before we get to that step, just take a step back. When Avram and the 70 nations were separated and Avram now became the source, the collection of all good in the world and the nations became the collection of all bad. Even so, after all, we're dealing with, a, with a, a, a massive mixture of good and bad to such a degree that we can't distinguish between them. Even when you do a separation like this, there's still going to be a lot of good in the bad and a lot of bad in the good. So even within Avraham, there's still going to be a lot of the bad of his ancestors and where he comes from, the places, the influences that he has in his life and in his past. And in the 70 nations, there'll be some of the good of the world, the good from Adam through Noah through Shem, through Mr. Shalach, through Chanuch, there'll be some of the good in the world as well in the 70 nations. After all, they all do derive from Noah, and they all eventually derive from Adam, who had a lot of good and good intention in his sin. So there will be some good in them as well. Now, what we need, though, is to do a complete separation. In order to affect a complete separation, the good has to be extracted from the 70 nations, and the bad has to be extracted from Avram. The bad from Avram will be absorbed by the 70 nations, incorporated by the 70 nations, the good from the 70 nations will be incorporated by Avram. And that's the concept of converts, of Gerim. The good from the 70 nations, the individuals who want, to, who want to have a share in the world to come, they want to have a share in God's purpose, they will have to leave their 70 nations. They'll have every opportunity and right to, but they'll have to leave the 70 nations in order to access that by becoming a part of Avram's nation, of Avram's collective. Now, that's the separation, the ultimate separation of good and bad. But even so now, Avram is working really hard to collect as many souls as he can on his journey through, from Ur-Kazdim through 
Haran through eventually into Eretz Yisrael, he's going to work really hard to collect all these souls. But even so, he's not going to be able to accomplish nearly what he needs to accomplish, what we eventually need to accomplish to fulfill his purpose. But the separation is now happening in full force. You have the 70 nations, distinct and separate, and you have Avram, distinct and separate. But there still remains in Avram some bad. And some of that bad has to be extracted. So how will this bad in Avram be extracted? We can even see a little hint of this bad, an allusion to it even, later on in the story of the covenant of the parts. In the bris bein when Avram is told by God that his children will inherit the land of Israel, and which by extension means inherit all that is good, everything that the land has to offer, the Eretz Zavas Cholav Devash, the land flowing with milk and honey, all the platitudes about the land of Israel, Avram questions this. He wonders if there is any, he, he really wants to extract from God a guarantee that his children will be worthy of inheriting the land of Israel and will never stumble and fall from that worthiness. So Hashem, he, the words of Avram are, Bame'eda, how will I know? And Hashem answers, they'll become foreigners in a land that is not their own. They'll be there for 400 years. They'll be, they'll be harassed and tormented by their hosts. And then eventually they'll be taken out with great wealth. Okay, they, the commentaries explain that over here we see a glimpse of Avram's shortcomings. We see a little glimpse of the bad within Avraham because he questioned God's assertion that his children will inherit the land of Israel. There's a slight lack of faith. And on Avram's level, the level he had attained by this point, the massively high level that he had attained, this was a, this was a problem. This was a fault. And if that fault be given time, especially to fester within his kids and to, and to develop, it would eventually lead to a much greater fault and much greater shortcoming within his children. So the response of God to how will you know that your children will inherit the land of Israel is that I'm going to expunge, I'm going to refine and purify that one part of you, that little part of you that remains impure, the little part of you that remains bad, I'm going to do that by putting your kids through a 400-year exile in the land of Egypt. It's important to note this is not a punishment. This is not a sin on Avram's part. He does have the possibility, he does have the option of overcoming the shortcomings that he has from his parents, the, the, the faults that he, that he inherits from his ancestors and from the, the evil all around him. He does have the ability to overcome that and not even ask the question. But when he does ask the question, it's not necessarily a sin. It's just reflective of the faults that he inherited and the faults that still remain within him, the bad that is still with, mixed within the good. Okay, so at this point, God promises that I'm going to find a way to extract this bad for you. What is the way I'm going to extract it? By sending, them, sending your descendants to a land that is not their own for 400 years, will there be, they will be harassed, tormented by their hosts. After which, they will leave with great wealth. Okay, that obviously is referring to their, their exile in Egypt and the story of the Pesach Seder. Now, maybe you're going to get to this, but part of that extraction was through some of his descendants, Ishmael, Esau, and then sort of growing that spiritual root, or maybe what's now a branch, through Isaac and Jacob. Correct. And I can, you're exactly right. And that will be part of the process of further refining Abraham and his seed. But if I could posit a theory, I don't necessarily know this. I haven't seen it anywhere. But the reason why this fault of Avram cannot be 
so to speak, extracted through Yishmael and extracted through Esav is because at this point we're talking about Avram's true seed. It's his true seed who is inheriting the land of Israel. But even then, when considering them, Avram still is worried. Meaning that fault isn't reflective of Avram's, of the shells, of the bad that is going to be cast aside earlier on in the process. But even of the faults that are present in the Jewish people that are going to be the more refined post-Yishmal, post-Esav extraction, the faults that are still going to be within the Jewish people at that point when they inherit the land of Israel, that is what Avram, that's where his concern comes from. And that fault comes from. It does not come from what's going to be extracted earlier on with Yishmal and Esav, but with the children who actually inherit the land of Israel. It's just a theory, but I don't know. Anyway, you're right. A lot of the bad of Avram is going to be extracted through Yishmal and through Esav. And even this I don't consider as a death sentence for either one of them. Because even that bad, as we said multiple times, can be converted into evil. But like the snake in the garden, and like we're going to see just in this entire arc of, of history, the Satan, the Satan, the evil influence who represents, who is that foil that we're constantly struggling with, the bad, there is always the possibility of turning into something good, of playing the proper role in this entire purpose. If they p- fulfill their actual purpose of being overcome by good, then they too will be elevated and become good. And I think Esau and Yishmael, who, who become thorns in the sides of the Jewish people and mortal enemies, they could have been simply the foil by which the Jewish people overcome their negative nature, their negative side, the bad side. And when they overcome them, they could be elevated as well and incorporated as well. But they, chose, they didn't choose that path. The Guth Misal was extracted because he did know a lot of Torah he just never drew down what he knew intellectually and transformed himself as a result. So his head was severed off and placed in the tomb. I feel like you're a step ahead of me. Excellent. And not only that, but later on, some of Esau's descendants, Rabbi Akiva, for example, who derives from converts, originally comes from the seed of Esau, as well as Antoninus, who is the great of the famed partner of Rebbe, also converts and becomes Jewish also derives from the seed of Esau. So there definitely is some good in the seed of Esau. There's no question of that. And Esau could have eventually turned his entire self and all his seed onto the good side, but he didn't do that. He didn't choose to do that. And Ishmael does teshuva at the end, right? Ishmael does some teshuva, and I'm sure there is some good that is currently, or throughout this entire process, being extracted as well. A little harder for me to locate, though. But yeah. I mean, I've never seen people more dedicated to davening they're right, than the Muslims? They're the Muslims. Excellent. And Rambam even says that there's no concern of idol worship from the Muslims because they fully believe in the one true God. So there definitely is a lot of good there as well, and we've yet to see potentially how that fully plays out. One more thing I wanted to mention about Yishmael and his brother Yitzchak is that we see exactly from when they're born and, and, and how their, their whole story plays out that Yitzchak was meant to be the good and Yishmael was meant to be the bad. How so? Yishmael is born before Avraham gets circumcised, when Avraham is still, he was 82, I believe. Yitzchak is born when Avraham's at 100. And the commentaries explain that there's a significance of Yitzchak being born at 100. That's when Avraham has fully conquered his lust. At this point, he has no more lust for, you know, selfish desires and things like that, because he's reached such an advanced age. And when Yitzchak is produced from Avraham in that state, Yitzchak can incorporate only the good. And the second thing that Avram only becomes circumcised so that he will have Yishma, that so that he will have Yitzchak, and he is not circumcised when he has Yishmael, is so that through the lack of circumcision, the lack 
which we we know from you know broader discussion that the circumcision is meant to curb our selfish desires, meant to curb our lusts and devote us to God. Well, from prior to the circumcision, some of the evil of Avram, some of the bad in Avram could have been drawn out into Yishmael, the product of himself, you know, before he circumcised. And then after he circumcised, there will be only good to come out for Yitzchak. And this okay. is part of the process of separation, one before the circumcision and one after. And just to add a little note to that, Avram does not get circumcised until Yishmael is 13 years old. And I think the significance, again, this is just positing a theory, is that until Yishmael turns 13, he is, of course, Avram's charge. He is Avram's responsibility being a minor. And only when Yishmael turns 13, is he not Avram's responsibility anymore, would you say that the line has fully been disconnected. And then you can say that Avram's not still sustaining Yishmael. He's not further emanating and influencing from within himself into Yishmael. And then at that point, the circumcision would be appropriate because now the good can come out just for Yitzchak. Just a theory, I don't know, but it is interesting yeah. that Yishmael only gets circumcised and Avram only gets circumcised when Yishmael turns 13. But at any rate, him having it at, an advance, at the age of 13 would explain why Avram has nothing more to offer to him, certainly not from the, uh, from the point of view of giving his seed to Yishmael, giving of his seed to Yishmael, and at that point, there is no more. He, he doesn't have to worry about giving some of the good to Yishmael. He can give all his good to Yitzchak, and that's why Yitzchak alone inherits the land of Israel. That's why Yitzchak alone inherits Avram and not Yishmael. And that's why Avram is all concerned up until this point, even after having Yishmael as a child, that he doesn't want Yishmael to inherit him, and he's until this point very distressed with the idea. Now, even though Yitzchak is concentrated of good, is a concentration of good, and Yishmael is a concentration of bad, Yitzchak still has some bad within him as well. This is part of what I meant by there being two tracks. It's hard for me to explain why there's still bad even after another level of refinement and another level of refinement. The truth is, to refine a metal such as gold, it probably goes through a lot of a lot of cycles of refinement. A lot of heat, a lot of pressure. And yeah, exactly, the heat and the pressure, but then it goes through it multiple times. So perhaps that's ex- that explains, at least allegorically, what, what's going on here. But certainly, when you consider the overarching track, I don't want to bring it up so often, when you consider the overarching track, God wants to m- maximize our opportunity in this world. He wants us to always have some bad to struggle with. So maybe at this point, Yitzchak is still not ready because there needs to be more opportunity to struggle with an internal Yitzhahara. And we're going to see even Yaakov still has some internal as well, that potentially that's the reason why these refinements are not sufficient to completely separate the good from the bad. Potentially, I don't know. But certainly Yitzchak has some bad within him, and that's clear from the next generation, where Esav and Yaakov are both born. Esav contains some bad with it, contains all the bad, and Yaakov contains all the good. And again, we find a further process of purification. Even in Yaakov, there are still some bad incorporated. And this is going to require, finally, as Avram was foretold, going down into Egypt to remove, to purify him of that bad. So why Egypt? That's the big question. Yeah. Why, why do we have to go to Egypt? And Egypt, we consider, is the potentially the worst environment you could imagine for a person to grow up spiritually. It's the complete opposite of spiritual growth. What the Egyptians were known for was their magic, for their ability to take spiritual forces and to coerce those spiritual forces to gratify their physical lusts. 
That's what the Egyptians were known for. Their magical powers, they didn't simply use that to build large structures or whatever. They used that to satisfy themselves, to gratify themselves. Which, if you think about it, means they're corrupting the spiritual. And we know from the placement of physicality, spirituality, and God, that spirituality is closer to God. The angels are closer to God. The spiritual realms are closer. They are taking that which is closer to God, if you would think of it almost as something that is God's own tools, God's own, his, his own personal realm through which he runs the world, and they're using that to gratify themselves. Nothing could be a greater disgrace of God in this world. And it's at this point that Ramchal says that God is the most concealed from the world during the Egyptian enslavement of the Jewish people. So this is where the Jews are going to go. The question is why? Why do they have to go to such a place where the conditions are so extremely counter what they ultimately want to become? So the answer is that, of course, this is the, the concept of the Iron Crucible. This is the concept of, in Hebrew, the Kor Harbarzel. In order to refine the gold, the, the neshamos, the pure souls of the Jewish people, to refine them even further, they must be placed into the most extreme conditions, just like the gold that needs to be refined in the iron crucible, it has to be placed under the most intense heat. It's only in Egypt that you can have such a, an extreme separation of the good and the bad that up until this point, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov had been incapable of producing. And that's why the Jews have to go down to Egypt. What's also interesting to note is the exact moment they go down to Egypt. I'm going to digress for one second. There were 70 souls when they went down to Egypt. Why is that so significant? So like we were talking about potentially before, and maybe this will be something to discuss later, or another time, the number 70 is significant because it represents a collective, whereas no other number below it really does. And it counterbalances the 70... And it counterbalances the 70 nations. Okay. So only when the Jews represent a collective, which in this sense means a nation of 70, now you can actually refer to them as a nation, as a truly more than just a family, but a nation. Only at that point, and it's a very small nation at that, will they enter the Egyptian iron crucible, the Egyptian exile. That's when they are 70 souls. And in fact, it's interesting because the 70th soul is born between the walls of Egypt. When they're entering Egypt, that's when the 70th soul is born. So it's so precisely orchestrated by God that the, 70th soul, that the second that they have 70 souls, when they are ready to start their 200, what was supposed to be 400 years of exile, is at the exact moment that they're entering Egypt. So perfectly orchestrated. It could have been they had their 70 souls in Canaan, in Canaan for a little bit before they came down into Egypt or potentially came down into Egypt and then the 70th soul came along a little bit later but because the process could only start with 70 souls it only be, the 70th soul came at the exact moment the precise moment that they entered the land of Egypt when the 400 years were scheduled to begin it's a fascinating perspective on the precision right. of this entire story and how God is so precise and orchestrates things so, with such minutia and such detail and that soul was? That soul was the soul of Yochebed, who will eventually become the mother of Moshe. And in a sense, she was the matriarch, the, in, in some ways the leader of the Jewish people, the spiritual leader of the Jewish people, alongside her husband Amram, while they're in the land of Egypt. So she is a very significant soul at that. So it's also showing us that as God's orchestrating challenging situations, he already has the solution baked in as well. Yes. Thank you for listening to part one of A History of Rectification with Rabbi Abrams. Stay tuned for the upcoming release of part two.
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.